If you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Genesis chapter 49. Last Sunday, we looked at Jacob's adopting of Ephraim and Manasseh. They were to be his sons, and if Joseph had any other children, they would be Joseph's, but these are his. And as sometimes happens, there were questions afterwards, and one of them had to do with Jacob putting his right hand on Ephraim's head and then his left hand on Manasseh's head, which on the face of it may have seemed strange when you consider, you know, Joseph is told that his father's ill. He comes to him with his two sons, and Joseph or Jacob then tells Joseph, your two sons born to you in Egypt before I came to you will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. Then when Joseph approaches, Jacob's like, who are these? It's like, wait a minute, you just spoke about Ephraim and Manasseh being your adopted sons. You don't recognize them? Um, Joseph said, these are the sons God has given me here. And then we find out that like his father Isaac, uh, Jacob's eyesight was failing because of his old age. He could hardly see. So he didn't recognize them. And so he says, bring them to me so that I may bless them. And he brings the sons and Jacob kisses them. He embraces them. Um, and the question was, if he couldn't know them, you know, who, who are these, how would he then know to put his right hand on Ephraim, on the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh, the older son? Which, by the way, J- Joseph thinks his father's confused and tries to get him to, to undo it. Um, he says, no, my father, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. Jacob refused. He said, I know, my son, I know. So, again, how could he know to put his right hand on Ephraim and his left hand on Manasseh? Um, I think our passage today in Genesis 49 gives us some insight into the matter. In this passage, Jacob blesses his 12 sons, and he announces to them what will happen to each tribe in the future which would seem to indicate that, as in the matter of Ephraim and Manasseh, Jacob, or Israel, was speaking as a prophet, in the role of a prophet. In the same way that Isaac did when he blessed Jacob, even though he thought he was Esau, may God give you of heaven's dew and of earth's richness and an abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. In this, Isaac is acting as not only a prophet, but also as a priest. In number six, we have the blessing that the priests, the Levitical priests, were supposed to announce. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. So they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. So both Isaac and Jacob are acting as prophets, that is saying what will happen in the future, but also as priests. They are pronouncing the blessing and whatever it is that they bless, God will bless. Today we will look at Jacob blessing his sons. He has 12 sons. We're only going to look at five. Um, but he calls them, if you look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 49, 
Then Jacob called for his sons and said, Gather around me so I can tell you what will happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to your father Israel. We were told in the previous passage that Joseph is told his father is ill. And as his health declines, Jacob calls his sons together. And the purpose is very specific. He is going to tell them what will happen to them in the days to come. But this is more than mere prediction. If you look down at verse number 28, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them. So it's not simply predicting what's going to happen. He blessed them, giving each the blessing appropriate to him. So it wasn't this generic blessing the 12 sons. It is very specific to each son. And as we will see, when we think of blessings, we have a very positive very narrow view, I think, of what a blessing is. Um, we think positive thoughts in that regard. Um, but there are also some negative things, some corrections that Jacob mentions. And these are also blessings as well. They are referred to as the sons of Jacob in verse number two, but then Jacob refers to himself as your father Israel. And we've seen this in the previous weeks how that there's, it goes back and forth, and Jacob is the individual, but Israel refers to the one who is the father of the nation. It begins with Reuben, who is the firstborn, verses 3 and 4. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power. Turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel. For you went up on your father's bed onto my couch and defiled it. This blessing begins, as one commentator puts it, with the heaping of praise upon majestic phrase. My firstborn, my might, the sign of my strength. But then in verse number four, it all sort of collapses. There's a contrast between the man who is the firstborn, his father's strength, and the one who failed in his calling. Being the firstborn was really important. And this isn't just a cultural thing. This is something we find well, in Exodus chapter 4. God tells Moses to go into Pharaoh. And what is, what is Moses to tell Pharaoh? Israel is my firstborn son. Okay. Let my son go so he may worship me. But you refused... And so I will kill your firstborn son. And so the 10th plague is the killing of the firstborn. This isn't, again, just a cultural thing. It's very, very significant. Um, in chapter 13, the Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether man or animal. You must give me the firstborn of your sons. Reuben is the firstborn. This is the beginning of Jacob's family. He is Jacob's might and the sign of his strength. But he failed. He was turbulent as, water, as the waters. He will no longer excel. In the NIV, it has turbulent. The uh, ESV has unstable. It's a word that is used one other time in the book of Judges. And it's translated by the NIV, at least, as reckless adventurers. That is to say, just sort of all over the place. It describes or it suggests wildness as much as weakness. Uh, 
You'd say, well, Reuben was a wild man. Well, he was also a weak man. And this is the aspect of water, which, you know, water can be okay, but it can also be quite undisciplined. In Proverbs 17, starting a quarrel is like breaching a dam. You've got all the water dammed up, and that's great. It's quiet. But then once there's a gap or a hole, then the water comes out, and you can't stop it. Reuben was a man of ungoverned impulse. It's seen in what we find in Genesis 35. When Israel was living in that region, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah, and Israel heard of it. I find it worth noting that Joseph or Jacob begins by addressing directly Reuben with a positive, you are my firstborn, and then negative, turbulent as water. But he shifts to the third person, and unfortunately the NIV misses this. Um, in the ESV, Jacob says, he went up on my couch. You know, in the NIV, he's directing, speaking to him directly, you went up on... But it seems now that Jacob is announcing to the family, did they know? Is this something they hadn't? It had been a big secret? And we're told that Jacob knew about it. Israel heard of it, we're told in chapter 35. But now Jacob tells the family, this is what your first, you're the oldest among you, this is what he did. And as a result, he is removed from his position as firstborn. We saw this last week from First Chronicles 5. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, he was the firstborn, but when he defiled his father's marriage bed, his rights as firstborn were given to the sons of Joseph, son of Israel. And although Judah was the strongest of his brothers and a ruler came from him, the rights of the firstborn belonged to Joseph. So this is Reuben, someone who is unstable as water, and his descendants appeared to be no better. In Numbers chapter 16, it were, there were two Reubenites who led a rebellion against Moses and Aaron, Dathan and Abiram. They rose up against Moses. Um, they came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? In other words, listen, you guys are in charge, really? What, what, why do you get to be in charge? Because you're holy? Hey, we're all holy, okay? We're the children of Israel. We're the chosen ones. What gives you the right? And the result is, Moses said, this is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things and that it was not my idea. If these men die a natural death and experience only what usually happens to men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about something totally new and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them with everything that belongs to them and they go down alive into the grave, then you will know that these men have treated the Lord with contempt. As soon as he finished saying all this, the ground under them split, op split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and their households and all Korah's men and all their possessions. They went down alive into the grave with everything they owned. The earth closed over them and they perished and were gone from the community. These are Reuben's descendants. They are as unstable as he was. And then there's another thing. They come in on the east side of the Jordan River. It's time to cross over into the promised land. 
And they don't want to go. They don't want to go. Numbers 32. The Reubenites and Gadites, who had very large flocks, saw that the lands of Jazer and Gilead were suitable for livestock, that is, on the east side. So they came to Moses and Eliezer the priest and to the leaders of the community, and they said, Ataroth, Dibon, Jezer, Nimrah, Heshbon, Eliah, Zebam, Nebo, and Beon, the, Lord, the land the Lord subdued before the people of Israel, are suitable for livestock, and your servants have livestock. If we have found favor in your eyes, they said, let this land be given to your servants as our possession. Do not make us cross the Jordan. We don't want to do that. We got plenty of animals. This is good territory. Let us just stay here. And Moses responds, Here you are, a brood of sinners, standing in the place of your fathers and making the Lord even more angry with Israel. If you turn away from following him, he will, leave, he will again leave all these people in the desert, and you will be the cause of their destruction. They do agree that they will send their fighting men across the Jordan River to help the other tribes conquer the land, and they'll come back home. But they don't want to go over into the promised land. And then there's another case. When Deborah uh, fights against the Canaanite king who had been ruling over the Israelites, um, she sings a song and she says, the princes of Issachar were with Deborah. Yes, Issachar was with Barak, rushing after them, him into the valley. In the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. They're like, hmm, is this something we should do? She goes on, why did you stay among the campfires to hear the whistling for the flocks? In the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. Yeah, they couldn't make up their mind. Unstable as water, they're just like their ancestor Reuben. Doesn't sound like much of a blessing, does it? But in fact, it is. So we leave the firstborn, and then Jacob does something that he doesn't do with the rest. He puts two brothers together. That is Simeon and Levi, verses 5, 6, and 7. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly, for they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Cursed be their anger so fierce and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. Jacob recalls the massacre that Simeon and Levi committed. Stories found in Genesis 34. Uh, Jacob and his family had settled near the town of Shechem, uh, not down south where his father was, where he should have been. Dinah, his only daughter, goes to meet the women of the town to sort of hang out. And while she is there, she is sexually assaulted. Her brothers are outraged by this. The man who assaulted her wants to marry her. And the brothers are like, okay, but we can't just let our daughter or our sister marry an uncircumcised man. So all you guys need to get circumcised. And if you do that, then we'll let our sister marry you. And they agree. And while they are still healing, they are vulnerable, Simeon and Levi go in and kill all the men. And then their brothers came in and looted the town taking their flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else of, this, of theirs in the city and out in the field. And they carried off all their wealth, all their women and children, taking as plunder everything in the houses. Jacob's reaction there is one of fear. 
You have brought trouble on me by making me a stench to the Canaanites and Perizzites, the people living in this land. We are few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. You've done this terrible thing. We're going to be in trouble. Well, now here at the end of his life, he's not speaking from fear, but rather he is speaking of judgment. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Of course they're brothers. I mean, we're the 12 sons of Jacob. But what he's saying is they're two of a kind. And it's interesting, uh, Levi, who was, in fact, the third son of Leah, Levi means attached. And when she gave birth to him, he said, now my husband, Jacob, will be attached to me because I've given him another son. I've given him three sons. Well, Levi was attached, all right, to Simeon. It almost seems like whatever Simeon wanted to do, Levi went along with it. And they are attached to one another in terms of cruelty and violence. Um, Here we are given information that we weren't given in chapter 34. There we know that they killed all the men. That we know. What we don't know is they hamstrung the oxen as they please. To hamstrung is to, hamstring is to cut the tendon. Uh, the oxen can still walk, but in fact they can't walk properly. Um, it, it leaves them somewhat crippled. And, and why would you do this to oxen if nothing? You're just a violent and cruel person. They do this cruel thing to an animal. And the result is, Jacob says, I will scatter them in Jacob. In other words, when you all go back to the promised land, you're not going to have a territory that is for Simeon and one that is for Levi. You're going to be scattered among your brothers. Of the 12 tribes, only these two did not have territory allotted to them. Simeon was absorbed by the tribe of Judah. Uh, by the way, Simeon, at the beginning of the Exodus, there were 59,300 members of Simeon. Forty years later, as they get ready to go in the Promised Land, there are 22,200. Lost almost two-thirds of their population. And at the end of Moses' life, he pronounces blessings on the tribes. And he doesn't mention Simeon. Simeon, in a sense, had just been forgotten. In Joshua 19, we're told the inheritance of the Simeonites was taken from the share of Judah because Judah's portion was more than they needed. So the Simeonites received their inheritance within the territory of Judah. And centuries later, Simeon is no longer south because Judah is the most southern tribe. They're up north. They're with the 10 lost tribes. Levi was given cities as they were scattered throughout. And, you know, on the face of it, this might seem, well, one would argue, this is really unfair. This is really, yeah, it's cruel. It's, it's not fair. Okay, Simeon and Levi did this thing, and they should bear the punishment for it. It should not, in fact, affect their descendants. But it's fascinating that what we find here is not a fixed fate. Like, this is the way it's got to be. In Jeremiah 17, the Lord says, if at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I planned. 
In other words, God says, listen, if you have this wicked people, and I'm like, okay, judgment is coming. But in fact, if they repent, then I'm not, I will not destroy them. This is the case with Levi. Even though Levi and Simeon were of the same mind, and they perpetrated the massacre, Levi's descendants did not end up as Simeon's. I was told by my advisor in college, if you want to learn something, you should teach it. And in preparing this sermon, I learned something that all these years I did not know. In Exodus chapter 32, we have the story of the golden calf. Remember, Moses goes up, Aaron builds the golden calf. People are like, we don't know what's happened to this guy. And Aaron says, this is the God that brought you out of Egypt. Moses comes down. Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughingstock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth throughout, through the camp, from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. And the Levites did as Moses commanded. And that day about 3,000 of the people died. Now this. Then Moses said, you have been set apart to the Lord today. For you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. One of the difficult things, we have the New Testament. So when we go back to the Old Testament, we tend to project back. And we know, you know older things are later things in the Old Testament. So when we read about the Levites, that the Levites joined and we're like, oh, this is all the priests. All the priests joined. No, there were no priests. They hadn't gotten to Sinai. Well, they were at Sinai, but they haven't been given the rules and regulations of worship. The sacrifices. They haven't been told who is going to be in charge of the sacrifices. It's up for grabs. It could have been the Simeonites if they had repented. If they had said, if Moses said, who is on the Lord's side? Rally to me. They could have gone, but they didn't. The Levites did. And because of that, the tribe of Levi, yes, they're going to be scattered throughout Israel, but they will be scattered as priests, as teachers those who will teach the people the law of God. There's a wonderful verse in Numbers 18. The Lord said to Aaron, you will have no, Aaron was a Levite, you will have no inheritance in, the, in their land, nor will you have any share among them. I am your share and inheritance among the Israelites. Because they stood with Moses against idolatry, God chose them to be the tribe of priests. Now, let's be clear. The Levites did not gain salvation or grace by their action. They already had that when God delivered them out of Egypt. That is the redemptive act. And having been redeemed, they now obey God. And they follow what Moses commanded them to do. They acted rightly because, in fact, they had been redeemed out of Egypt. The fourth son is Judah. He's also the fourth son of Leah. All these sons so far have been sons of Leah. Verse 8. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. 
Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. So far, the blessings have been rather negative. That Jacob has been rebuking his first three sons. I would argue that this rebuke is in fact the form of a blessing. Levi's descendants, they get the message and they stand with God. The Reubenites and the Simeonites, no, they don't. Jacob prophesies a very different future for them than what he had wanted. But now with Judah, we have an element of hope. It begins with a play on Judah's name. Judah's name, Judah means praise. Okay. Leah named him and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Her fourth son has been born. And Jacob speaks of Judah's dominance over his brothers and that he will overcome his enemies. The lion imagery has three parts, a lion's cub, a lion, and a lioness. Um, By the way, we will see the Lord willing next week that lion is also used for Dan and Gad, but it is Judah who will dominate. Verse number 10 finds a shift. And now in verse number 10, Jacob unknowingly, I think, is speaking of the coming Messiah. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. Jesus will be, in fact, from the tribe of Judah. Centuries later, Ezekiel, when... uh, Jerusalem is about to go into captivity for the final time. O profane and wicked prince of Israel, whose day has come, whose time of punishment has reached its climax, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Take off the turban, remove the crown, because he's king. It will not be as it was. The lowly will be exalted, and the exalted will be brought low. A ruin, a ruin, I will make it a ruin, speaking of Jerusalem. It will not be restored until he comes to whom it rightfully belongs. To him I will give it. In other words, someone is coming from the tribe of Judah, and he will govern the nations. What follows this in verses 11 and 12 about Judah is less than clear, but I would suggest that it is still a reference to the Messiah and that he will bring abundance So much so, if you look in verse number 11, that a man can tie his donkey to a choice vine. I'm not a gardener and I don't know about vineyards, but I don't think you tie a donkey or a horse to a vine because they can pull it off. But there will be so many vines, there will be such abundance that, yeah, go ahead and tie it to a vine. And if it wanders off and tears the vine, that's okay. We've got plenty. The last three verses are messianic, but don't forget the first verse and the lion imagery. We find this in Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, 
who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Now we come to son number five, verse number 11, uh, verse 13. It's Zebulun. Zebulun will live by the seashore and become a haven for ships. His border will extend towards Sidon. Um, this is strange. If you think about it, this is something's wrong here. Because what Jacob has done thus far is the birth order. Firstborn, secondborn Simeon, thirdborn Levi, fourthborn Judah. The fifth son he mentions is the tenth son. He's not the fifth son. He's not even Leah's fifth son. He's the sixth son of Leah. So the order suddenly is, we're, we're like Joseph. Uh, no, dad, you need to, this is the right hand on the older and the left hand on the younger. It's like, no, dad, Jacob, why are you mentioning Zebulun now? It should not be him. Has he lost count? Is he confused? No, not at all. Judah was located in southern Israel. Zebulun is in the north. It, in fact, is located stretching from the Sea of Galilee toward Sidon. There's some debate as to whether or not it reached the Mediterranean Sea, but it's stretched toward Sidon, is what the text says. And speaking of Judah, Jacob points ahead to the Messiah, though I think he did not know it. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which was located in Judah, David's hometown. Luke tells us, so Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judah, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. Then later, the angel tells the shepherds, today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. So Jesus was born in the territory of Judah centuries later, but he's born there in Bethlehem. Where do you think Jesus grew up? He grew up in Nazareth. And where is Nazareth? In the region of Zebulun. And so in blessing his sons, Jacob, I would say somewhat unknowingly, points ahead to the Messiah who would be born, who would be of the line of Judah, but would grow up in the ter territory of Zebulun. You may remember that I said several Sundays ago that scripture is a revelation of the creator who was seen in Jesus, the exact representation of his being. Knowingly or not, Jacob points ahead to the coming Messiah from the line of Judah who will be born in the southern part of Israel, the tribe of the uh, territory of Judah, but will grow up in the territory of Zebulun. And when Jesus began his ministry, where did he start? This is from Matthew chapter 4. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which is on the seacoast of the Sea of Galilee, which is by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. To fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, and now Matthew quotes Isaiah chapter 9. 
land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. While Jacob is blessing, both negatively and positively, his sons, he ultimately is pointing to the Messiah. I, I mentioned this when we talked about this. Oftentimes we see the Bible as a textbook, as a resource book, uh, an informational guide. Now, it is the revelation of God as seen in Jesus Christ. And so here is an event that happens 14, 15 centuries before Jesus is born. And Jacob is saying, okay, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, oh, and now Zebulun. The Lord willing, we will continue this next Sunday. But the question may come up, what gives Jacob the right to pronounce blessings, or one might even say cursings, rebuking on his sons? Uh, I mean, his record isn't really that good, is it? The way that he wouldn't give his brother food when he was starving. Instead, he bargained so he could get the birthright. He deceived his father. I would say that he resorted to superstition when it came to earning a living with his father-in-law. And then when he leaves Paddan Aram, God told him to, he doesn't go down to where Isaac is. He stays in Succoth. Then he goes over to Shechem, and there his daughter is raped. His record isn't that great. Is it simply that he is the patriarch? He's the pater familias. He's, you know, ancient culture. He's the dad, and whatever he says goes. One could argue he has the right to do what he wants to do. There's something more, though, that's going on here. In Numbers chapter 23, Balaam, who is a priest, has been hired by Balak, the king of Moab, to curse the Israelites because they're coming through and he's really worried they're going to take over the territory of Moab, even though God said that belongs to Moab. Uh, so he hires him to curse Israel. And we're told the Lord put a word in his mouth, in Balaam's mouth. And so he spoke blessing instead of cursing. And this is the beginning of what he said. The first part may sound very familiar to you. God is not a man that he should lie. God is truth. Okay. Neither the son of man that he should repent. Has he said and shall he not do it? Has he spoken and shall he not make it good? Behold, I have received a commandment to bless, and he has blessed, and I cannot reverse it. He has not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither has he seen perverseness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among him. We're like, oh, hold on, Balaam, could you back up there a little bit? Um, God has not seen any iniquity in Jacob? He has not, in fact, seen perverseness in Israel. I have. I don't, I don't know what, I mean, what's going on here? How can Balaam say such a thing? Israel was, in fact, the recipient 
of divine grace. We sang our hymn today, Amazing Grace. But let me ask you, which of these two graces is the, most, the more wonderful and blessed? I mean, they're all great, but is it the grace of God which gives us perfect standing in Christ, that God saves us by his grace and we are his children? Is it that grace or is it the grace when we are the children of God and we don't act like the children of God? When in fact, we are in Christ, but we have not lived up to our state. We are in many ways like Reuben, the firstborn. Yeah, but we're not acting like the firstborn. But God is gracious to us. In this series, we have seen time and time again that God was gracious to his people. They go through trials but in the end, God is gracious to them. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 103, he made his ways known to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. And that is because God is gracious. Yes, God in his grace has saved us and we are now in Christ. But God is also gracious that even though we are in Christ, we oftentimes don't act that way. But God remains gracious. By the way, it's one of the reasons in our worship every Sunday we have the prayer of confession. We want to publicly acknowledge to one another, to God, that we are in Christ, that we don't always act that way. But God is gracious and he forgives us. Just he, he forgave us and put us in Christ. We are now his children. Let's pray together. Our Father, we confess that oftentimes when we read passages like this, uh, much of it, uh, our eyes sort of glaze over, we don't really understand. We think it makes an interesting story. And how easily we forget that it all points to your Son. It also reveals much of us of our, un- our being unstable like Reuben and even cruel like Simeon and Levi. As Lonnie read to us on our quote for meditation that oftentimes we resort to sort of daydreaming, fantasies, angry ruminations. We are as cruel in our thoughts as Simeon and Levi were to the men of Shechem. And yet by your grace, like Levi, we are your people, we are your servants, we are your priests. And it is because of your amazing grace. Jacob didn't have a great track record, but he trusted you.
there are times when our record is less than what it should be. But by your grace, we trust you. We thank you for the wonder of your revelation in scripture, how that centuries before, probably unknowing, Jacob points to the Messiah who will be born in Judah and raised in Zebulun. It's really quite amazing and we give thanks. And speaking of giving thanks on this day, we thank you for the four and a half years you've given to Dan since his stroke. How the doctor is surprised at how well he has done. We know it is your doing. It is your grace. And we are so grateful. For the things coming up this week, we commit them to you. For travels, for medical visits, just living our lives. Help us to remember that you are with us every step of the way. And again, as the quote Lonnie read to us, in a real sense, we're already home as we're on our journey home. Thank you for your love, your infinite and undying love. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.